Hello, and welcome to the Complete History of Science. Series 3, Episode 2. The Sun Sets in the West and Rises in the East. Following the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632 AD, Muslim armies from the Arabian Peninsula marched north at astounding speed. Over the course of the next 25 years, they would conquer almost all of Syria, Palestine, Persia and Egypt, and within a century, take most of North Africa and Spain. Conquest, on this scale and at this speed, had not been seen in this region since the days of Alexander the Great, over a thousand years previously, but the Arab armies, well organised and spurred on by religious conviction, swept aside all those who stood against them. Soon, a huge new empire, known as the Caliphate, stood at the shores of the Mediterranean. This new entity would be ruled by a political and religious leader, known as the Caliph, who would claim direct descent from the Prophet. The Caliphs slowly organised this territory into a centralised polity, ruled by an Arab elite and united by Islamic belief. Over the centuries, several dynasties ruled over the Caliphate, and its territories were in a constant state of flux. But, we pick up our story at the beginning of the 9th century, with the Abbasid Caliphate, because it was here that the next important strand in the history of science would emerge. In 813 AD, a new Caliph, Al-Mamun, took power after defeating his brother in a bloody civil war, during which large parts of Baghdad, the Abbasid capital, was destroyed. This may not seem a propitious beginning for a new era of learning, but, once in power, Al-Mamun set about cultivating a court which, while religious, was also tolerant, cosmopolitan, and above all, intellectual. Al-Mamun, and more generally the Abbasid dynasty, were capable administrators, who appreciated the need for an educated bureaucracy to run their enormous empire. They recruited many of these bureaucrats from the literate Nestorian Christian population, who, centuries earlier, had fled east to escape religious persecution in the Byzantine Empire. Similarly, many educated Persians found new roles within the administration after their own territory had been subsumed into the caliphate. This diverse population brought the Islamic rulers into contact with Greek thought, and perhaps none embraced this more than al-Mamun. The son of the previous caliph, al-Rashid, al-Mamun was tutored by his father's Persian vizier, Jafar, who instilled in him a love of reading. This would be a lifelong passion, and al-Mamun supported a huge translation programme of Greek texts into Arabic. Al-Mamun was not the first caliph to sponsor translations, but he greatly accelerated the translation movement by sending scholars far and wide to collect all of the most important Greek works. These were collected in a place known as the Bait al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom. Like the Great Library of Alexandria, the House of Wisdom has acquired near-mythical status as a seat of learning, but, regrettably, the original building was destroyed in the siege of Baghdad in the 13th century. We therefore cannot be certain of the exact form that it took. However, it's likely that it was a private library, sponsored by the Caliph and employing many translators. 
Texts were translated from the original Greek, but also from Syriac, the language of the Nestorians, who had already translated many Greek books. However, the Arabs were not merely translators or incubators of Greek knowledge. Access to the classical texts in logic, mathematics and philosophy created a vibrant community of scholarship. The House of Wisdom assumed a wider role as a centre for learning and Al-Mamun was enthusiastically involved speaking with the scholars and arbitrating debates. Translation was not an end in itself, but a starting point from which scholars used their newfound knowledge to contribute original ideas. In science, virtually every field which had flourished in ancient Greece was revitalised, and Islamic intellectuals contributed new work in areas such as medicine and optics. However, the field that attracted the most interest was astronomy. The resurgence of astronomy in the Islamic world was stimulated in part by the translation movement, but crucially, it was also an area in which the state actively intervened to encourage. Most importantly, a huge new programme of observational astronomy was sponsored by Al-Mamun. The first set of astronomical measurements of the period, which survive, date from the final years of Al-Mamun's reign. These were made at two observatories, one in the new capital of Baghdad, and one near the old capital of Damascus. Although we know relatively little about these observatories, we know that at Baghdad, the astronomer in charge was a Persian, known as Yahya Abi Mansur, who was also attached to the House of Wisdom. These observatories have left no physical trace, but the observations they left suggest they were taken largely using the same methods and instruments used by their Greek predecessors. Interest in astronomy may have been motivated initially by curiosity. However, as knowledge of astronomy grew, so did an awareness of its potential utility, especially with regard to the particular religious concerns of Islam. In Islam, prayer times are observed five times a day, once after sunrise, once around midday, once in the late afternoon, once at dusk, and finally, between sunset and midnight. Naturally, prayers at sunrise and sunset were fairly easy to keep track of, but knowing when midday or afternoon prayer should take place was left to mere guesswork. Astronomy, however, seemed to offer a new way to accurately tell the time. Early Islamic astronomers realised it was possible to use their knowledge of the sun's daily motion to keep better track of the time. This work was based on the idea of the hour angle. Over the course of a day, the sun makes its way across the sky in an arc from east to west, reaching its highest point or maximum altitude in the sky at midday. The hour angle is simply the angle formed between the sun's maximum altitude and its current position, which gives us a way to calculate the time. The earliest estimates using this method were made by the Persian Al-Khwarizmi, who was working in the first half of the 9th century. He produced lengthy tables, which estimated prayer times in Baghdad based on solar motion. These tables also spurred Al-Khwarizmi 
to write a treatise on proper sundial construction, to account for variations in latitude. Al-Khwarizmi was working under the patronage of Al-Mamun, and was arguably the first great astronomer of the period. However, Al-Khwarizmi, perhaps correctly, is now better known for his work as a mathematician. He is responsible for the introduction of the Hindu decimal system to the Islamic world, and through him, it would be transmitted to the West. He also wrote a famous treatise on algebra, algebra, which gave methods for solving equations, including quadratics. These methods had not been unknown to the Greeks, but Al-Khwarizmi generalizes them and gives geometric proofs of the solutions. His name, in fact, gives us the word algorithm, which derives from the step-by-step instructions he used for solving equations. In astronomy, however, Al-Khwarizmi's most influential contribution was his introduction of Ptolemy to the Islamic world. Prior to Al-Khwarizmi, it is believed that most Islamic astronomy followed the Indian rather than Greek tradition. Indian astronomy being largely comprised of methods for calculating the motion of celestial bodies through the sky, which were then compiled into astronomical tables. Early Islamic astronomy produced many of these tables, which were known as Zij, including ones made by Al-Khwarizmi himself. The difference, however, was that in addition to relying on Indian astronomy, Al-Khwarizmi borrowed heavily from observations made by Ptolemy. Ptolemy's central work, the Almagest, had been a remarkable achievement, providing an accurate account of the motion of the sun, moon, planets and stars, based on centuries of observations of the night sky. The difference between Ptolemy's work and Indian astronomy was that in addition to the calculations of the motions of the celestial objects, Ptolemy had also made geometrical models which underlie his observations. In the intervening centuries, the Almagest had continued to be recognised as a great work, and several writers, such as Theon of Alexandria and his more famous daughter Hypatia, wrote commentaries on it. Islamic astronomers began to discover Ptolemy, and by the early 9th century, at least three translations of Ptolemy's Almagest had already been made into Arabic. The one which survives was made by a translator called Al-Hajjaj in around 828 AD, likely at the behest of Al-Mamun in the House of Wisdom. This copy largely preserves the sentence structure and meaning of the Greek original, and encouraged a greater interest in Greek astronomy. The reverence for this work is demonstrated by the title given to it by the Islamic astronomers. Originally known as Mathematical Syntaxis, the new name, the one that would stick, was Almagest, meaning the greatest. The widespread concern for Ptolemaic astronomy in this period is demonstrated by the appearance of a new book, written by the astronomer Al-Fargani. The book, written around 830 AD, became known as A Compendium of the Science of the Stars, and aims to give an updated account of the Almagest. It was written for a broad audience, and leaves out most of Ptolemy's complex mathematics, but still manages to give a precise account of the universe 
according to the Almagest. For example, Alfagani explained to his readers the justification of the severity of the earth, as well as its size. And he gave an account of Ptolemy's geocentric model, including explanations of the planet's retrogressions and the processional movement of the fixed stars. The compendium may seem to be a work in the tradition of the Roman encyclopedias then, but I think there are at least two reasons that it's more important. Firstly, it was incredibly successful, eventually being translated into Latin, and responsible for stimulating interest in Ptolemy's work in the West centuries later. More immediately, Alfagani's work is our main surviving evidence that from the beginning, Islamic astronomers would cast a critical eye on Ptolemy. In the compendium, Alfagani uses updated values of several of Ptolemy's parameters. For example, Ptolemy measured what is known as the obliquity of the ecliptic. You may recall that as we view the sun, moon and planets in the night sky, they seem to be aligned along a great circle, which is inclined at some angle with respect to Earth. This is due to the fact that the Earth's axis is tilted with respect to the plane of the celestial bodies. However, to our geocentric forebears, it seemed that these bodies were moving around this great circle, which they called the ecliptic, and so the angle to this was called the obliquity of the ecliptic. Ptolemy's value of this angle was 23 degrees and 51 minutes, but Alfagani gives an updated value of 23 degrees and 33 minutes, which was likely taken from measurements made by al Mamun's astronomers in Baghdad. The compendium then may have been a popular narrative, but it was also fully embedded in the most up-to-date astronomical work which was taking place at the time. And indeed, the astronomers in Baghdad were truly at the cutting edge of astronomy in the 9th century. Al-Mamun had died in 833 AD, but his legacy remained, and astronomy in the Arab world continued to flourish. Thanks to the translation movement, astronomers were fully versed in Ptolemy's work, but due to their own observations, they weren't unduly reverent of everything they read. They checked every part of the Almagest, and the more they looked, the more inconsistencies they noticed. So, they set out to make new measurements, culminating in a full year of solar observations made between 831 and 832 AD. The result of this was that astronomers noticed an important oversight in the Almagest. Ptolemy's solar model had been developed to account for the so-called solar anomaly. We covered this in series 1, but to recap, this was the observation that the seasons were of unequal length. In astronomical terms, the seasons are a measure of the time between the solstices and the equinoxes. Naively, we might expect that these equate to a quarter of a year, but it had been known since ancient times that this was not the case. For example, the time between the vernal equinox and summer solstice is 93 days, whereas the time between the autumn equinox and winter solstice is only 90 days. This observation was an incredibly important one in the ancient world, 
and motivated Ptolemy's predecessor Hipparchus to adopt what was known as the eccentric model. In the eccentric model, the Sun still rotates around the Earth in a circular orbit, but this orbit is not centred on the Earth. Instead, it's centred on another point, about which the Sun rotates at uniform speed. This model was successful in accounting for the observed motion, because from our vantage point on Earth, it would appear that the Sun moves at a variable rate. One consequence of the Earth not being at the centre is it also means there was a point during the year where the Sun is furthest from the Earth, the so-called solar apogee. Ptolemy knew that this happens at some time between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox. However, 700 years had passed since Ptolemy, and when Alma Mun's astronomers checked the position of the solar apogee, they noticed it had moved. This change is real, but also very slow, shifting by around 2 degrees per century, and hence wasn't immediately apparent in the ancient world. Ptolemy was entirely unaware of this change, and so hadn't accounted for it in any of his models. This then marked a major development in the history of astronomy, because it demonstrated that Ptolemy's errors were not limited to the accuracy of his measurements. Instead, it showed unambiguously that Ptolemy's models were incomplete. However, arguably, an even more important observation in the development of astronomical theory was about to be made. In the ancient world, the phenomena of precession had been discovered by Hipparchus. He noticed a very slow change in the position of the stars when comparing his own measurements to those of the early Greeks and Babylonians. This change was only apparent when measured over centuries, and so it was natural for the Arab astronomers to try and verify these earlier measurements. Ptolemy had estimated the rate of precession between his own time and Hipparchus at roughly one degree per century. But when the Arab astronomers looked, they found the change was only about one degree every 65 years. By the mid-9th century then, there were two clear discrepancies in Ptolemy's measurements that needed to be accounted for. Firstly, there was the obliquity of the ecliptic, which had appeared to decrease by about 19 arc minutes. The second was the value for the rate of precession, which had seemingly varied since ancient times. Ostensibly, this implied one of either two options. Either Ptolemy's measurements were wrong, or the changes were real, and new models were needed to account for this. Many Islamic astronomers opted for the latter and set out to modify Ptolemy's theories. The most successful of these attempts was the theory of trepidation attributed to Thabit ibn Kura. Thabit was not an Arab, but a Sabian, a polytheistic religious group centred around Haran in what is now southeastern Turkey. He was supposedly recruited to the House of Wisdom after his exceptional linguistic skills were noticed while he worked as a money changer at a market stall. Brought to work in Baghdad, Thabit became well acquainted with mathematics, philosophy and medicine, and also translated Greek mathematical work 
into Arabic. This education prepared him well to tackle the problem, and ambitiously he attempted to find a model which simultaneously accounted for the change in the obliquity of the ecliptic and the change in the rate of precession. Fully aware of the state of contemporary astronomy and the work of Ptolemy, Thabit approached the problem by looking for sources in the intervening years. His attempts, unfortunately, were hamstrung by the lack of any observations between the death of Ptolemy and the 9th century. Indeed, the only astronomical work from the intervening centuries which Thabit could get his hands on was a commentary on Ptolemy, which had been written by Theon of Alexandria in the 4th century BC. And this work, unfortunately, had the effect to further mislead Thabit, because Theon mentions a strange idea which he attributes to a group of astrologers. The rate of precession was generally measured by observing the position of certain stars, such as Regulus, in the night sky. Ptolemy, Hipparchus and the Arabs had measured a general eastward shift in the longitude of Regulus, indicative of precession. However, Theon reported that these stars only travel about 8 degrees eastward, before they reverse direction westward. He called this back and forth motion, accession and recession. The group of astrologers from whom he took this idea also gave a date when this change had supposedly happened, 158 BC. Thabit used this idea of oscillating stellar motion as the basis for an updated theory. Whereas Ptolemy had attached the planets, the sun, the moon and the fixed stars to eight different spheres, Thabit introduces a ninth, which accounts for the daily motion of the Earth. This also allowed him to account for a varying rate of precession, by assuming that the eighth sphere, that is the sphere of the fixed stars, wobbles with respect to the ninth. The result was mathematically dense, but successfully modelled accession and recession, reproducing the variability in the rate of precession to a high degree of accuracy. Even more miraculously, it could simultaneously reproduce the variation in the obliquity of the ecliptic that had been observed. However, despite its success in reproducing the apparent phenomena, Thabit's theory of trepidation is something of a cautionary tale in the history of science. Trepidation would be accepted by many of the most brilliant astronomers in the future, being endorsed by no less a figure than Copernicus. Theon is the only ancient author to mention accession and recession, and it likely derives from a mistake on his part. Different conventions for coordinates were used in the ancient world, and there's a good chance that Theon muddled them up. Even more devastating for the theory was that in fact there is no real variation in the rate of precession. Ptolemy had simply made incorrect measurements for the longitude of the stars. If the Arab astronomers had just ignored him and relied on the measurements of Hipparchus and the Babylonians, they'd have found that their value of 1 degree every 65 years was accurate. Trepidation demonstrates how we should exercise extreme vigilance in endorsing elaborate theories purely because they reproduce observation. 
particularly in cases where we have limited data. And in fairness to many of Thabit's contemporaries, they were aware of this. Albertani, a younger peer of Thabit and also a Sabian, took a more cautious approach. He rejected Thabit's theory on pragmatic grounds, arguing that there simply weren't sufficient observations to justify such an elaborate theory, which, in hindsight, is very wise. Albertani is now remembered as one of the foremost astronomers of the time. This is mainly due to his observational work, where, over the course of 30 years, he collected data at a private observatory in Raqqa, on the Euphrates River. The result of this extensive survey was the Zij, known as the Sabian Tables. In these tables, Albertani ignored trepidation, and instead updates Ptolemy by using a uniform rate of precession of around 1 degree every 66 years. The Sabian Tables would go on to exert a great influence, being translated into Latin during the 12th century, and would become the main source of Islamic observational astronomy in the West. This fame has meant arguably that Albertani's achievements are somewhat overhyped, with some accounts hailing him as the greatest of the Islamic astronomers. The scope of Albertani's work was in fact relatively limited, and he was primarily an observational astronomer who made little contribution to astronomical theory. Rather than developing new models, his main successes were measuring new values for parameters, such as the length of the tropical year, and the obliquity of the ecliptic. His most important original accomplishment was demonstrating that annular eclipses are possible. An annular eclipse is one where the moon passes in front of the sun without fully covering it. It differs from a partial eclipse, however, in that its path passes by the centre of the sun. However, the sun is not fully covered, as the apparent diameter of the moon is sufficiently small to leave a visible ring of fire. Albertani measured the apparent diameter of the sun and moon, and recognised they would vary sufficiently in order for annular eclipses to be possible. This work was again a refutation of Ptolemy, who ignored the possibility there should be any change in diameter, despite it being implied by his eccentric model. Collectively, these discoveries meant that astronomers were finding more and more reasons to doubt Ptolemy. The most consequential critique of Ptolemy appeared in the 11th century and came from possibly the most remarkable scientist of the entire Islamic Golden Age. Al-Haytham was born in Basra, in present-day Iraq, but moved to Cairo. His journey there is indicative of a larger shift taking place in the Islamic world. After the death of al-Mamun, patronage of astronomy continued under his successor, his brother, Harun Rashid. But, by the late 10th century, the scientific fervour of the early Abbasid caliphs had subsided, an astronomical work in the East regressed. Likewise, the translation movement had died down, as most of the major Greek works of natural philosophy had already been translated, often multiple times. 
Political power was also in flux. As a new dynasty, claiming direct descent from the Prophet Muhammad, conquered many of the Abbasid client states in the West. This new dynasty, the Fatimids, eventually ruled most of North Africa, as well as some of the old Abbasid territory in the East, such as Syria. They made their new capital in Cairo, and here, under the patronage of the Fatimids, Al-Haytham would complete his work. Like many of the astronomers of the age, Al-Haytham could claim to be an excellent philosopher. However, his overall body of work was characterised by an attitude which may appear to us refreshingly modern. Al-Haytham was rigorous in his approach and deeply sceptical of previous work, writing many critiques of, for example, Aristotle. This scepticism also resulted in one of the most important reflections on Greek astronomy, a work which Al-Haytham called Doubts on Ptolemy. In this work, Al-Haytham explicitly points out many of the problems inherent in Ptolemy's work. For example, he objects to Ptolemy's methods for determining the obliquity of the ecliptic. In the Almagest, instead of determining exactly the difference in position of the sun at the summer and winter solstices, he only measures it approximately. Al-Haytham knew that several of Ptolemy's other parameters, such as the solar year, were connected to this point, meaning that they were also inaccurate. This explained why Islamic astronomers were better able to determine the obliquity of the ecliptic, as well as other measurements. However, Al-Haytham had an even more fundamental objection, one which arguably undermined Ptolemy's whole system. As we've discussed, Ptolemy's solar theory relied on the eccentric model. This model assumed the Earth was not at the centre of rotation. He also applied a similar, but even more elaborate model in the case of the planets. The planets not only aren't centred on Earth, but rotate around another point still, not at the centre, called the equant. Alhaitham strongly objected to these models, because although they may have worked mathematically, there was no physical basis for them. Ptolemy had himself tried to create a physical justification by imagining that the celestial bodies are attached to great spheres. But Alhaitham contended that this only further undermined his own models. To understand Alhaitham's objection, consider this. The sun is supposedly moving around a great sphere, but this great sphere moves around a point which is not at the centre. Imagine for illustration a ball. If you want to spin the ball at some uniform speed, surely it should spin around its central axis. Mathematically, it may have been fine and convenient for the sun to move around the equant, but a physical sphere cannot. If we're to imagine these spheres really existing, then the whole edifice collapses. Ultimately, the issue derives from the principle of uniform motion. Since Aristotle, every astronomer had assumed that all celestial motion should conform to two unreproachable tenets. The first was that celestial motion must be circular, and the second was that motion should be at a constant speed. 
Ptolemy's models were a consequence of his strict adherence to these principles, while still trying to reproduce observations. Alhytham wouldn't abandon these principles himself, or develop new models, but his arguments were widely read. In truth, Ptolemy's equant had always been a deeply unsatisfying conclusion, but Alhytham had demonstrated that an alternative must be sought. This would lay down the gauntlet, and much of the astronomical work which took place over the next several centuries would aim to revise and replace Ptolemy's models. We'll catch up with developments in astronomy again soon, as its centre of gravity will continue to move both westward into Latin Europe, but also Islamic Andalusia. However, in the next episode, we'll take a deeper look at Al-Haytham and his greatest work, the Book of Optics. I hope you'll join me then. (laughs) 